This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. It's been an odd year at the Minnesota Capitol. Lawmakers started their session back at the end of January with a record-breaking $9.25 billion budget surplus. And they ended their session nearly two weeks ago now with most of that money unspent. The state treasury, if there is such a thing, is bursting with surplus money. But you know the story. Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate were unable to agree on the details of a plan to spend a big chunk, use another chunk to cut taxes, and hold on to another chunk of the surplus in case of an economic downturn. Governor Tim Walz is planning to meet with legislative leaders this afternoon to try to get them to work toward an agreement they could pass in a special session, but there's no word from Senate Republicans that they will go along with that. We thought it would be a good time to get some facts and analysis from folks who keep a close eye on state politics and government. They are reporters for some of Minnesota's biggest and best news outlets in reverse alphabetical order. They are Dave Oreck, Capitol reporter for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, Brianna Biersbach, political reporter for the Star Tribune, and our own Brian Baxt from right here at NPR News. Thanks to each of you for being here. And Dave Oreck, let me start with you. How did we get here? How did things break down at the end of the session? Well, how did we not get here? I think those of us who've been watching this kind of from day one said, how are you guys going to actually reach agreement on this stuff? Uh, The hope for people who want to see things done was that a pile of money this large, everybody could be happy. And it looked for a minute like everyone would be happy. There was an agreement between Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller, House Speaker Melissa Hortman, and Governor Tim Walz to split up the money in a combination of spending plans and tax breaks. But then the devil was in the details, and they couldn't get it done. Brianna Biersbach, are there certain areas where they're more stuck than others? Uh, Yeah, it definitely sounds like public safety has been one of the big trouble areas for for both sides. And and we really don't have very many details about what the specifics are. I mean, I think from the start, they were pretty ideologically divided on this issue. You know, Republicans... Big plan had more money to recruit police officers, signing bonuses, things like that. Democrats wanted to put more money into um, community nonprofits, Um, you know, but this this fundamental disagreement they have on sort of the future of policing and and what that should look like, I think, is getting in the way here. Also, they have a a pretty big disagreement um, in a surprise area, health and human services. Republicans had this big proposal early in session to put a billion dollars into pay raises for the care industry. So long term care and nursing homes. That's still their big priority. Democrats want in this kind of billion dollar target that they set out to also um, put some money toward the child care crisis because Mm. people are having a really hard time finding child care, which, you know, obviously deals with the workforce shortage in the state as well. People can't get get back to work unless they have child care in a lot of cases. Um, And they also want some money toward homelessness. So it sounds like those are really have been a struggle um, and might be part of the talks that they have ongoing into next week. Okay, we'll get back to some of those specifics. Brian Baxt, uh, how much of this do you think is politics? Um, Are there folks, Republicans in the Senate, maybe in particular, who think they're better off without a a big deal? Yeah. Keep in mind, this is a big election year with everything on the ballot. The governor's office, the full legislature, which means control of the House and Senate are on the line in in chambers that have been fairly closely divided. They're running on new maps, and so they're really just trying to find their footing as well. When this framework came out in uh, a couple weeks ago in May – 
they uh, and this is this is four billion spending, four billion tax cut, four billion stays in case of a right. And if folks are wondering how we get to twelve billion from the intro where you talked about nine billion, it's because they're looking three years out into the horizon. Okay. So there's some money immediate, and then some money projected to come in over the next couple of years beyond that. And Republicans started to hear from some of their uh, base members that that this is too much spending. The legislature passed a $52 billion two-year budget last year, which was a big increase over the prior budget. And adding this much more spending ongoing in in a lot of cases would only uh, kind of tie the state into a bigger government presence going on. So they wanted the tax cuts. They they felt like the tax cuts were uh, something they they fought for and were happy about the size of the tax cuts, the, the nature of the tax cuts they were okay with. But when it came to the spending, they weren't necessarily ready to commit to that. And that's where a lot of the disputes came in. Uh, the tax bill was ready to be voted on, but Democrats in the House said, we're not going to give up this tax bill without the commitment that you're going to do the other side of the deal. Mm-hmm. And that's where things broke down. And Dave Oreck, uh, the Speaker of the House, Melissa Hortman, said early on, a couple months ago that she thought uh, Republicans didn't want a deal, that they thought uh, they'd do well in the election, they'd be in charge next time. She walked that back a little bit. Um, but do you think that might be what's happening here? Well, that dynamic exists. There's no question that um, there are some Republicans who believe that they will prevail in the this upcoming election in November and take control of the House, maintain or increase their control of the Senate. And as such, if nothing is passed this year by this line of thinking, they will have the full $9 billion to do in mostly tax cuts. And that, they believe, would be the ultimate um, gift and keeping the promise and the beliefs of their, their base, their strongest supporters, who really, as Brian said, want to see smaller government. So that calculation exists on, on some Republicans. I, I'm not going to speak to whether Senate Majority Leader Jeremy Miller doesn't want to see a deal. I mean, he is showing up for talks, and he reached that a- agreement with Hortman and Walls early on. Mm-hmm. But we haven't heard from Jeremy Miller since session adjourned. He put out a statement last Friday, which the Senate Republicans referred to again this week as still the statement of Senator Miller, where he said, deadlines mean something, and when you set a deadline, you have to meet it. So basically, he's saying, I'm not sure we can even get a deal. And now there's not this backdrop of a of an adjournment deadline to hem them in. So these talks could go on for a while. They could go on all summer into the election, perhaps beyond. I mean, there's really nothing between here and the next uh, legislative session, which doesn't start until January, that would compel them to act. And we have to remember, we've seen this before last fall. For months and months and months, they wanted to call a special session to deal with frontline workers, to deal with drought relief. And they just kept having disagreements behind the scene. And then it never materialized. And suddenly we were in regular session again. But no one ever said the special session is definitely not happening. They were always in kind of these constant talks. Um, And I've been talking to some um, rank and file Senate Republicans over the last few days just to talk about different issues that did get done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sensing an urgency um, from anyone that I'm talking to to come back. A lot of them are saying, we can do this next year. Why don't we do this next year? So if if that's what Jeremy Miller is hearing, I imagine there's not a ton of pressure on him right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. There, there is no real push from Republicans to come back. I think what's interesting, Brianna, you just mentioned the recent history of this. As long as we have divided government in Minnesota, I think this is the new model. We can have arbitrary dates on a calendar that 
maybe mean something, maybe don't. We write about it in terms of looming deadlines. But without the threat of a government shutdown, and there wasn't one this year, I think that this is going to be what Minnesotans should expect to see moving forward. And no threat of a government shutdown because the budget is balanced. In fact, it, it was we on a we're on a two year budget cycle in Minnesota, and it was passed last year. So there is plenty of spending to continue to fund everything from state police to the parks through this fiscal year. And that surplus just sits there, right? right. It just sits there, as Dave mentioned, for when they come back next year um, and potentially grows. But is there no pressure from folks who might want a tax cut? Um, the the Senate made a big deal out of eliminating the state tax on Social Security earnings. And that was in the deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that was their number one priority. It was what they talked about from the very beginning. Um, I think they did really want this, but it's it's easier to walk away when you want fewer things. This was the big thing they wanted. Um, But I think they think they can still get it next year. They can still come to the table and have a ton of money there um, and, and get that done. But they don't have to potentially deal with one or, or two Democratic branches or, or leaders on a bunch of spending that they didn't want. So yeah, I, I think that that's kind of why they it's a little bit easier for them to step mm-hmm. away. Dave yeah, Moore. here's the message that, that they take to their voters. And again, this is an election season. Like Brian said, this is really important, which is, hey, we were going to get you guys a, a tax break. The Democrats wanted a bunch of stuff that you don't want, so we didn't do it. But vote for us, and we'll get you that tax break next year. Do you think for a moment that you would even we would have even had a chance at a tax break this year if it wasn't for us? You think if Democrats were in control, they would have even offered a $4 billion tax break? That's the Republican message that hmm. they're planning to take to voters this summer and fall. And the Democratic message is, there was going to be a billion dollars for education. And a lot of the school districts around the state are under pressure. You know, they have a cost that they weren't anticipating due to the pandemic. They have mental health issues that they were hoping to address. They have special education uh, costs that they've been uh, really grappling with for, for decades as to how to, to serve both special education students and general education students. And so particularly in the suburbs, you're going to hear a lot of that messages. That money could have come to you, but it, but the Republicans weren't willing to go the distance there. Republicans said that they were willing to agree to an education bill, but there was so much tied into this agreement that if one domino didn't fall, none of them fell. And I think they'll say, we, and we tried to get it done. We kept, We stayed when they went home. And I, I think you're going to hear that from Democrats. I also think you're going to hear them talking about child care a lot. Mm-hmm. That was a really big piece built into tax cuts, built into um, this health and human services target. And it is a real concern in the state. There's a shortage um, of child care options. People want to get who want to get back to work can't. Um, and I think they know they have an issue there that they can talk about. That's Brianna Biersbach. She covers politics for the Star Tribune. Also here is Dave Oreck. He's the political reporter for the uh, Pioneer Press. And Brian Baxt is here. Of course, he works for NPR News covering the state capitol. Talking about the impasse at the capitol over this uh, big surplus. Uh, will there be a special session? The governor has a meeting with legislative leaders this afternoon. I guess we'll see if anything comes from that. You know, you mentioned that uh, Jeremy Miller, the Senate majority leader, hasn't been talking much since the session ended. The governor has been talking publicly. Uh, Speaker Hortman has been talking publicly. They say, well, we're close. The ball's on the one-yard line. We can get this done. Are they close, Brian, or are they far apart? 
Well, I mean, the, the meeting today is virtual. If they were really ready to kind of dig in, it probably would have been in person. We, there hasn't been much communication since the end of session uh, involving all three of them. Even the governor said he's only talked to Speaker Hortman once or twice since the end of session. Uh, what's interesting to me is I've been out at some of these events that the governor has been having, and all year long he's been reluctant to to really criticize lawmakers and legislators. He's been trying to appear above it all because he's, of course, on the ballot as well this year. Hmm. He's he's taken a sharper tone with with Republicans in particular, calling them, uh, you know, willing to take that knee or walk away when things are so close, or not 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 willing to accept the win because, as Dave talked about, there's so much money out there that every interest is going to get something. Though the Republicans are going to uh, get these tax cuts that they were talking about, the Democrats are going to get some of the education and childcare stuff that they were talking about if they come to agreement. Uh, the governor's also been talking a lot about some of some smaller things that weren't really on the radar until after the session, which was, you know, the, some of this federal infrastructure money that, mm-hmm. that, that Minnesota is in line for if it puts up matching money. He says that there might not be the ability to put up matching money and that those, some of those infrastructure dollars could go to states that are putting up the money. So he's trying to create the urgency for a special session. I'm not sure that he's actually going to be able to get one, though. What's interesting is I do think they are close in several areas. It sounds like they had a bonding bill basically ready to go, but there was just a few little details. Um, same and, with housing. And, and that's to pay for public works construction yeah, projects. construction projects across the state. That's usually the only thing they do in a non-budgeting year. That was the only thing they were supposed to do. It didn't happen. But it sounds like they're close on that. Transportation, a housing deal. But the, the problem is it's sort of a domino's effect. If you can get the big things um, where there are the more disagreements passed and suddenly there's a will to do something, then all those other things tend to fall together. But if you're not if you're feeling like you're stuck still on, say, public safety, on health care, um, on education, potentially those other things just they're, they're close, but they're far away. And public safety is going to be interesting. Traditionally, you know, crime peaks uh, in the summer, it goes up and we'll see what happens. There's been a big perception of violent crime on the increase. And uh, it is possible that Democrats, some Democrats see a potential urgency being added to it where they get to take the law and order argument or try to from Republicans and say, hey, crime is up. We support hiring police. We also support these alternative means of uh, crime deterrence, crime prevention, including, uh, like Brianna explained, funding for local community nonprofits and stuff. But the Republicans have walked away. We could see that as part of the Democratic message, as well as the argument that that Republicans walked away from tax cuts. These two arguments that the Democrats might make would be uh, directly to your so-called swing voters in the suburbs, not the hard base, but the people who they're going to need to get there in the suburbs in greater Minnesota if they're going to gain control of the Senate and maintain control of the House. Is that an effective message? Uh, Brian, what do you think? Well, in this environment, it's still a tough message because the national politics seem to have drown out a lot of people. A lot of people probably didn't even know the legislature was in session. They didn't know if the legislature ended the session without doing much. But they do know that they're paying a lot for gas. They do know that they're paying a lot at the grocery store. They they do know that, as Dave mentioned, that there is some crime issues in the cities and some of the suburbs and other places. And so some of those things might be bigger in the minds of voters than whether some of these details came together for the legislature. Mm-hmm. Brianna, is it hard, though, for Republicans to run on a crime is out of control 
when they were in session and they had a chance to pass a public safety bill and they they didn't pass one? Yeah, I mean, I think Republicans generally have done a good job of running on crime. Mm -hmm. Um, We saw that in the last cycle, especially, um, you know, whether specific Democrats supported defunding the police or abolishing the police, um, which is a more simplistic version of of proposals we actually saw. Um, Whether they supported that or not, it didn't really matter. They were hit with that issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really effective in swing districts, both in Minnesota for the legislature and we saw nationally for Congress. Um, So I think we're going to see some of that again. And I think People tend to put the legislative session in the rearview mirror once summer starts. I mean, I think some people will kind of vaguely remember that that, that things didn't get done. The legislature is generally pretty unpopular. Right. Um, But when it comes down to messaging that resonates with people, it's going to be what they're feeling, what they're seeing. They might feel that crime is is up and they they might just resonate toward the candidate that they think is giving them the message they want to address that. I don't know if the what happened and didn't happen is going to be as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, we we got into a little bit of some of the specifics about uh, crime and, and uh, human services, but why are these so hard to, to resolve, do you think? Is it uh, purely an ideological thing or is it the amount of money or... Dave, what do you think? It's it's a combination. It it, it can be ideology, ideological. It can be the money. It's also where the base of each side comes in. Um, you know, Carlos Mariani, the uh, the chair of the House Public Safety Committee, he was getting real pressure to make the top priority be a lot of these community programs that aren't just hiring more guys with guns and badges. And Senator Warren Limmer, the Senate lead uh, chairman of the Public Safety Committee, his priority first and foremost, was more cops. And those, they can both exist. There was enough money for them both to exist. But neither one ever really spoke to the other's top priority during these negotiations, as I understand them, at least not in a way that satisfied the other. And so that's where you got kind of a a breakdown and a dissonance. And I'm not sure, and maybe my colleagues here have better insight, but I'm not sure that we ever got to see the push comes to shove and whether the Democrats really were willing to support hiring as many police officers as they said they would, and whether the Republicans really were as open to some of these um, community non-traditional policing initiatives as uh, they at various times said they were. And among the House uh, Democratic Caucus, uh, the the prospect of, of having more law enforcement is not necessarily that popular in some segments of that caucus. You know, there, there's a lot of distrust of law enforcement. We, we had that... Uh, audit uh, by the Department of Human Rights come out uh, at like right at the end of session and uh, it just, of the Minneapolis Police of the Minneapolis Department. Police Department right. and, and some of the shortcomings and and that go back quite a ways and and there were some uh, anecdotes about some some pretty uh, awful treatment of minority communities and so that was always a tough sell for Melissa Hortman and and, and trying to get her bring her caucus along on doing more law enforcement because that was going to be part of the deal no matter what. If there was going to be a deal, there was going to be more money for recruitment, more money for police pensions to to keep people on the force. But there was also this this tug about how much to do on criminal penalties, what criminal penalties to enhance. Uh, and, then, and then as they've, as my colleagues have talked about, how much to put into these groups that go out and try to intervene or disrupt crime by by talking one-on-one or, or on the same level as, as some of the folks who are, are committing crime. Mm-hmm. So they, 
what you're saying is, in shorthand, they actually have to pass a bill at the end. They have right? to pass a bill at the end. And so if they can't get everybody on board, it doesn't matter how much they negotiate or even what they negotiate. Uh, right. And, the, and as we've talked about, these, these majorities in both chambers are razor thin. So you do have to go into it thinking, we might have to pass this on our own. Hopefully, we'll find some agreement that will, will you know, be a broad bipartisan agreement. But we can't necessarily rely on the other party that's looking to take us out in the next election to mm-hmm. help us across the finish line. Well, and I think people think, well, if you can't get an agreement on this, why don't you do with, deal with the things you did get an agreement on, right? The the tax chairs, the day before session ended, announced this deal. They shook hands. They put a little table out and signed it. I mean, they were trying to show we have this big historic tax agreement. So, you know, I think in a lot of people's minds say, well, why don't you just pass that? And then if you can't get an agreement in other areas, just, you know, move on. Um, but everything was kind of linked, right? Democrats wanted a lot of the spending pieces. Republicans wanted the tax cuts. Everything was a leveraging position. And then when you know, when one part of it blew up, it all blew up. And I think that's Mm -hmm. still the case. Everything is very, very linked. Yeah, everything is linked except the bonding bill wasn't supposed to be linked. And that's one of the surprised me a little bit that because you mentioned earlier, Brianna, there was a largely agreement on a bonding bill. And that's what I understand, too. Uh, A bonding bill we never saw. That's right. (laughs) We were going to see at 1145 p.m. on the last (laughs) night at best. Um, But but that has yet to happen. And so everything is sort of crumbled together. And and it does raise the the possibility that the deal gets smaller. Mm-hmm. They take some things away, they decide that maybe we'll do some of this, some of that and then f- let the rest ride into the election and fight over that on the campaign trail. But that's going to have to take mutual agreement to say we're going to slim it down. Is and, there is there any chance the deal could get bigger? Brianna, you were talking about human services. Uh, I mean the Senate Republicans want to increase pay for nursing home workers. The Democrats want more child care, more family money. Could they take some of that $4 billion they wanted to leave on the table and add to some of these bills? They can do anything, really, that they want, right? All this money sitting there. I think the hard part, and maybe we didn't address this before, is I think people think $9 billion, like that's so much money. Why can't everyone get a little bit that they want? But the bigger the number gets, the bigger people's appetites get, the bigger interest groups kind of come and say, we need all of these things and you have all this money to do it. It makes it harder to um, please everyone. And, and some legislators have sort of said privately they Things like, you know, in the past, I would, you know, sometimes it's it's easier when there's a smaller number there. So I think they could, you know, raise these things in, in some areas um, and maybe shrink them in others. Um, but it's all kind of hard when you had this deal that people are still holding out there, this 444 that Brian mentioned. Um, and, and they're still kind of looking to that to say we want some, some equity in, in the different pieces that everyone's getting. There is one pathway that they can go. And we saw it at the end of session. We saw the mental health bill come sort of out of nowhere. Literally, it was, a, uh, as I understand it, about eight to 10 hours of behind the scenes working. Republicans and Democrats who are sort of moderates in the middle sort of created their own little problem solving caucus and uh, and came up with a with a bill that what was about 90 million dollars for mental health that was passed and signed by the by the governor. And so it is possible to peel off areas uh, on this. I'm not hearing that that's happening right now. Let me ask, uh, well, Brian, I think I'll pick Mm. on you here. Um, How confident are Republicans that they will be in charge next uh, year, whether it be the House, the Senate, or the House, Senate, and the governor's office? They're very confident. I mean, I don't don't think I've seen them this confident uh, in 
a long time. I mean, since I've been covering politics, they they've had this big uh, losing streak in the state and statewide offices, and they feel like they can probably pick off one or two of, of the statewide offices, maybe more. Uh, of course, the governor's race is going to be the key test for them, and and whether they can kind of get that uh, that office back that they haven't had since Tim Pawlenty left in 2011. Uh, you know, but but the political environment there's still some unsettled aspects to it we're going to get that big roe v wade decision uh at probably at the end of this month there's uh potentially the january 6th hearings could capture the public's interest and attention and maybe cause some anxiety uh we don't know whether the economy is gonna uh stay generally strong or if it's gonna if it's gonna dip i mean there is so much out there that we don't know yet and so I don't think anybody should be uh, counting their their wins or measuring their curtains at the Capitol yet. But Dave Oreck, uh gas prices, four and a half bucks, uh, food, groceries are up. Uh, the president's approval rating is in the high 30s, maybe low 40s. Uh, this is not a good environment for Democrats. No, they're facing headwinds. Look, historically, let's not forget, this is the midterm election, and generally the party in power doesn't do well nationally in Congress, but it often flows down. You get these waves. So there's no question that. Brian is absolutely right. Republicans are more confident than I've heard them uh, since Pawlenty era. But there's a lot of confident people on the Democratic side. Now, they've I think they've seen some of the Republican confidence, and that's caused them to pause a little bit. But I have had a lot of conversations with Democrats who are confident that they're going to be okay. And I'm just really eager to see what it's like the morning after Election Day, because one of these two sides is wrong. <laughs> and some pretty smart people are are going to end up being wrong. And And I'm in the camp with Brian. I put all my chips on. I have no idea. Like, I'm not going to... I'm not going to make any predictions. I think it's way too early for that. I, I know what you'll hear from both sides, but whether which will resonate is much harder to say. It, fe- it feels a lot like 2010, which was kind of my big first election year that I covered. Republicans took control of the legislature for the first time in, what, 40 years almost? Out of um, nowhere in the Senate. Out of yeah. nowhere. No, yeah. one, no one was even expecting that. Um, and, and of course, they came close to taking the governor's office and, and probably should have, but um, ended up having a recount and, and a Democrat, Mark Dayton, won. And, and that was not necessarily the expected outcome either. So I think there's also been a lot of kind of realigning and shifting that's happened over the last 10 years, right? We've seen much more polarization between, you know, the the urban cores and, and the rural areas. We've seen pop, a lot of population shifts in that time as well. Um, so I think, as Brian and Dave both said, the test for Republicans is do they can they win statewide even in a big kind of wave, potentially big wave year for them or, or a year where they're they're poised to do incredibly well. Um, I think this is going to be a big test going forward about if, if these are if if these offices are kind of permanently out of their hands unless they make a big shift in their messaging, a big shift in which kind of candidates they they put forward for statewide office. Um, but we don't know yet. They could they could win a number of statewide races, too. Brian mentioned uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to make a decision on the future of Roe versus Wade. Uh, there was that draft uh, opinion that circulated. Um, do you think that 
could make a big difference? I, d- I do. I mean, I think Democrats are kind of saying this is the this is a, the issue that could mobilize our base in a year where they maybe aren't feeling super excited about getting out to vote for Democrats, um, particularly in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Governor Walls really needs and, and the other Democrats on the statewide ticket um, need to have boosted turnout in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And there was a feeling that maybe there wasn't a lot of energy behind Democrats over a number of things that have happened over the last two years. Um, so this could be the issue they need to help get their their um, core constituency out and help them win statewide. It could also be um, potentially a big issue in the suburbs where I think um, they're getting sort of bluer over time, especially the entering suburbs. A lot of women, a lot of moms um, who, who could be mobilized in this issue in ways that they might not have been before. And I remember Speaker Hortman uh, talking after the 2018 election about the shirts, the pink shirts the and the red shirts, uh, meaning the, the, the groups that uh, – support changes to gun laws Mm -hmm. uh, being kind of their ace in the hole. And again, we're seeing with some of these uh, mass shooting events in the last few weeks where there's been some remobilization of that that coalition and the the Roe v. Wade decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court is going to potentially add to that. We don't know that the, the Roe v. Wade will ultimately fall in full. I mean, that's what the draft opinion that leaked out there said. But that was a draft opinion. We don't know if that's going to be the final opinion. But if it does, some of these coalitions could move or or be be reinvigorated in a way that will help Democrats because they are struggling uh, definitely in the the, the general environment, the generic environment. It it could be a troublesome year for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, candidate filings close this week. Uh, Candidates have to sign up to run for office to get their names on the ballot. For the two uh, leading candidates for governor, the incumbent DFLer Tim Walls, uh, Republican Scott Jensen, I guess the the news was no major primary challenges. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I think we, we knew that was happening anyways, but um, we know now voters are going to have a long time to look at this race for governor and assess the candidates. Obviously, Tim Walls has been governor for four years. They've seen him uh, pre-pandemic and during the pandemic and now coming out of the pandemic. And so I think they have a a lot of good information to assess him on. For many voters, um, especially not those in the Republican base, this might be their first time really getting a chance to get to know Scott Jensen, a family physician from Chaska who served one term in the state Senate and has really boosted his campaign off of uh, COVID-related skepticism of vaccines, Uh, theories that uh, flirt with the conspiratorial on inflated death counts and stuff. Um, And we will see how he pivots now into speaking to the broader public who probably wants to hear a lot more about his thoughts on issues other than just COVID-related stuff. Even Republican strategists who know that their base really hates COVID mandates and stuff, that is not a primary message they don't believe to win in contested races. It's, it's crime. It's the economy. To some extent, education. To some extent, government overreach uh, related to COVID mandates and stuff. But that's not seen by a number that I've spoken with as their core issue in a general election type of setting. Yeah. And and Scott Jensen uh, eked out the endorsement at his party convention. It went nine ballots and he topped Kendall Qualls in the end. Kendall Qualls decided not to run in the the primary, endorsed Scott Jensen. And this week, Rich Stanek, who had been sitting on the sidelines a little bit, waiting to see how things shook out. 
He also said he wasn't going to run in the primary. He didn't. He didn't go as far as endorsing Scott Jensen, but he stayed out of the race, and that was a mm. big deal. Uh, and there was another development that uh, outside the Secretary of State's office where I was stationed, uh, Corey Heppel didn't show up. You know, he's this this uh, former radio show host that a lot of Democrats were worried about because he was potentially going to siphon some votes away from uh, Tim Walz. But Tim Walz still has to worry about the fact that there is another independent candidate and two pro-marijuana party candidates eventually. The, the marijuana parties have primaries as well, which we mm. haven't seen necessarily. Right. But uh, there's going to be some uh, pressure on walls to keep his coalition in line and keep people from bleeding out uh, into the third party column. Because if they do, you know, if his number falls, that could mean Scott Jensen gets just enough to, to get over the top. I mean, nobody's going to get 50% most likely in this race. So it's depending on who's highest in the 40s. Yeah, the third parties are really, I think, a wild car. I mean, obviously, in 2020, we saw um, in a number number of key races for the legislature and for Congress, um, those candidates kind of uh, Democrats alleged were some were recruited by Republicans. um, And, and they said that they were just enough to tip the scales in favor, um, potentially to control the Senate, um, but in some key congressional races as well. I don't think we know yet if that strategy is being employed. But it is the, the third party presence is so interesting in a time when people um, are really polarized, right? Does that sort of kind of nullify the power of a third party in, se- in the sense that people are much more firmly in their camps? Or does it give them power when people are so dis- – some- there's a you know presence in the middle that's dissatisfied? I-, I mean, I don't think either party really knows what that is going to – how that's going to play out. And they're, they're pretty worried about it. Mm-hmm. Does the uh, support for the governor translate to those other constitutional offices, attorney general, secretary of state, state auditor, or do those races – run on their own. Anybody want to try that one, Dave Orrick? It, it can. I mean, we definitely see trends across the ballot, but they tend to vary. I mean, I think the best example in the last general election was uh, Keith Ellison underperforming all the other Democrats because there was a, a series of allegations that he was having to deal with. And we can see voters in Minnesota split their tickets completely. I mean, we've seen that historically. It's one of the reasons we end up with such divided government so frequently. But having said that, uh, I do think that the ingoing assumption is that there'll be a trend one way or the other that will be discernible, and only when you get to really close races will things really tip. I don't see any candidate out there who's got such a level of charisma that's going to transcend all party lines that he or she would just be a complete outlier of whichever party sort of rides the wave. I know for down-ballot races, too, I mean, president is obviously at the top, and Mm. that kind of can spill down. But I know for the Democrats, um, U.S. Senate races tend to have some spilled-on effect, especially if Amy Klobuchar is on the ballot, because she does well across the state um, generally. But I I don't know if the governor's race, especially in such such an environment, is going to be as much of a top-down race, potentially. I, I, it, will, it remains to be seen um, how Jensen kind of boosts um, the Republican base. I think that could be an interesting thing to mm. watch. Brian Bax. I think if you ask Democrats, frankly, they will tell you that they are worried about the attorney general's race. Keith Ellison uh, had the narrowest win of all the constitutional officers last time. And in his case, he, you know, he was the the, the attorney general who led to police prosecutions, so it fits in the law and order theme. And and the difference, though, 
between his race and the governor's race and also the secretary of state's race is Keith Ellison and Steve Simon, the secretary of state, will have head-to-head contests with the Republicans. There will be no third-party candidates in those races as far as we know. I mean, the the secretary of state is still working on some very minor party uh, certifications. Mm-hmm. But in those races, there were no marijuana party candidates that stuck it out. So, so those will be clear Republican versus Democrat. Also, the Republicans in the attorney general's race have a primary. I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, Doug Wardlow, who was the nominee last time, and went to the convention saying he would seek and abide by the endorsement, decided to run a primary anyway against Jim Schultz, who's a newcomer to the political scene, a young attorney that a lot of Republicans are excited about because they feel like he's a different brand of politician to put up against Keith Ellison. And depending on how that race comes out, it will determine kind of the trend or the the shape of that fall attorney general's race. Well, what about Keith Ellison? He, uh, you, you mentioned he prosecuted a couple of police officers, uh, successfully prosecuted, but he also uh, enforced the governor's COVID orders, and he expressed his support for that uh, Minneapolis referendum mm-hmm. that would have replaced the police department with a new public safety organization. Uh, what do you think that that means for him, Brianna? I mean, he's he's going to be defined by a number of those things. I think by Republicans, we're already seeing that. Um, they're going to talk about, um, they're going to use, as I mentioned before, the defund slogan, even if that's not exactly what question um, question two would have done. So I think that we're going to see ads about that for him. I think we're going to see ads uh, about the civil unrest related to his race. We already saw that even before um, we had an endorsed candidate. And I, you know, I, I, he's Unlike some of the other candidates, he's really kind of stuck his neck out and taken positions on issues that are more polarizing around the state. Keith Ellison also is um, very good at turning out his base in Minneapolis, where he served in Congress for a dozen years. Um, That's something he's famous for. He's very good at at mobilizing his core constituency. If he can do that well, um, that could kind of offset potentially some of those challenges he faces in greater Minnesota. Yeah, and let's not forget that um, Keith Ellison suffered in the last election when he was the worst performing Democrat. He suffered from some Democratic fall off. Mm-hmm. There were allegations of domestic abuse, and that led to a, a number of uh, various Democrats just not voting for him. And he can now make a different argument. First of all, that is presumably in his rearview mirror. Secondly, he can say to moderates, hey, you guys were afraid of radical liberal Keith Ellison. Look, I've had this job for four years. Have I transformed this office into some kind of a leftish regime? No. Now, Republicans will say you absolutely have. But I do think he has a very different case that he can make to voters um, than he could last time, both to moderates and, of course, to core Democrats who have seen him in office for four years. On the other hand, you look at the Secretary of State's race, and there's a very different dynamic there. This is the race where Minnesota might get to see quite a bit about election denial, Mm -hmm. about denial of the results. Kim Crockett, the Republican nominee for Secretary of State, has been someone who has sued over um, the changes in in election law and things like that. And Steve Simon, as the incumbent, is the guy who, who ran the election. And while the election results of 2020 in Minnesota really weren't that close for president. Um, you're going to see those issues bubble up. And I don't know how that's going to affect Republican turnout from the brand that really wants to see that relitigated or blowback from people who say, guys, it's over. Let's move on. It's interesting. I, I ran into a 
Republican uh, lawmaker, former lawmaker in just my travels. And and they were really hoping to see a legitimate primary challenger to Kim Crockett. They're worried about their ability to win that office with her. Kim Crockett, you know, she's she's very popular among the the folks who who want more election integrity, and and she will do well among that crowd. But uh, Steve Simon has also kind of built a a pragmatic base, and and is not seen as a firebrand in the same way that some of these other statewide officers are. So. It'll it'll be interesting to see how close that race really is. Have any of you talked to Kim Crockett since she got the uh, endorsement? No, I, I think I got the closest when I spoke with her after she got her uh, endorsement, and she said uh, she would she would speak with me in in due time. But uh, I haven't yet. She did not go to the traditional uh, scrums that we have with the with the candidates and everything like that. She has eschewed the mainstream media thus far. I think. Okay. Um, Something else happened this week in the 1st Congressional District where uh, uh, Brad Finstead won the Republican uh, primary last week for the election that is in uh, in August to fill out the remainder of Jim Hagedorn's turn. Uh, He he defeated a couple other Republicans, but then they filed again to run against him in November – or at least to run against him in the primary in August, which will set up the ballot for November. Um, Matt Benda was one of them. He was in, but then yesterday he was out again. Uh, Jeremy Munson, the other candidate. Do we have any idea what's what's happening there? Well, it was interesting. Uh, Matt Benda put out a statement saying that it was related to some kind of campaign finance compliance, right? And that there was a lot of, um, you know, legal questions he had about that. But that's all we've heard from either of them. We still don't know um, if that's the same issue going on with uh, State Representative Jeremy Munson. Um, Also, if that were the case, I would have expected some of the other candidates to potentially file as well. Jennifer Carnahan, um, you know, some other state representatives who ran, maybe they potentially, you know, could have had the same concerns around campaign finance compliance that would have prompted them to file. Um, You know, and, and Jeremy Munson had said, I'm I'm leaving. I'm leaving politics. I'm exiting from politics when he lost the special election primary. So it's it's pretty confusing. And, and Republicans are really upset about it because they had just endorsed Brad Finstead mm-hmm. after he won. They want to go in united. Um, you know, I think they feel pretty confident about this district. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it went about 10 percentage points for Trump in the last election. But, you know, they have a, a, a former Hormel CEO who has a lot of own money he can p- potentially put toward his campaign who um, isn't someone that they should just sort of sleep on in terms of a challenger. Hmm. Brian Max. We're, we're four days past the time when, when Jeremy Munson filed. We haven't heard from him. If he was really planning to campaign hard for this, he probably would have taken a different tact. You can be on the ballot and be an active campaigner, and those are two different things. And so I think a lot of Republicans expect him to be on the ballot just as a name. But Brad Finston seems to have kind of the – the wind at his back. He was the the favorite of a lot of folks in the National Party. Uh, they really wanted him, just given his background as a farmer and a former uh, Trump administration a USDA official. They really like that profile, mm-hmm. and so I think that they're happy with him. And I feel like they they think that he is the nominee for both this coming general election and the special election that will be decided. So, <laughs> parts of it will be decided on the same day. Right. If you live in southern Minnesota, 
Check your address and check the calendar yes. because it, a lot depends on uh, who you're going to vote for and when you're going to vote. Uh, let me just reintroduce you all. That's Brian Bax. He covers politics for NPR News. Brianna Biersbach is here. She works for the Star Tribune. And Dave Oreck covers politics for the Pioneer Press. Um, before we leave this uh, filing uh, issue, let me uh, go to the legislature. Did we learn anything interesting about uh, some of these legislative races with uh, the filings? Uh, you know, the Republicans in the Senate have quite a few primaries, including uh, Republicans, and that and that tends to happen in years when when people feel good about their party's chances. They they feel like I can step up and really hold this person's feet to the fire to make sure that they are abiding by the principles I feel like our party should set. They have more primaries than than the, the Senate DFLers do. Uh, there's also about twenty races where, as of now, there's only one candidate, so those people have their ticket punched to the to the Capitol. Most of them are Minneapolis area DFLers. And so they were probably going to win those seats going away anyway. Mm. Uh, but you know, the, the, the more you can kind of settle some of this stuff now, the more you can focus on where the real battles are going to be. One thing that was interesting that I don't think is talked about as much is the number of people who are leaving the filing period kind of put a put a, you know, a, a period on that a few mm. more people declined to run again. Um, and a lobbyist who keeps track of this thing said it, he calculated that it's at an even 600 years of experience are going to be leaving uh, the Capitol building. And these aren't people who are, they might be running for another office, but not in this building, um, in the Capitol building. Right. And then there are a few who are running to change chambers. Um, but we don't know if all of them will return necessarily. So that number could grow. Um, I think that's the biggest, uh, it's the largest number of people who are leaving the Capitol in 50 years. Years and that number of of years of experience is really going to, I think, change the place in a way that we'll have to see when session starts in January. Yeah, depending on the outcome, we could see a third to a half of new membership in the, the legislature, which when they come back and have this big surplus that we talked about at the front half of the mm -hmm. show, it's going to make it hard for them to move quickly because they still have to figure out what it all means, how, to, how the budget works. Yeah, and to put a, a emphasis on what that may mean politically in the balance of power, it's important to note the number of uh, Democrats from greater Minnesota that are retiring and have leaving open seats, which are going to be hard ones for Democrats to hang on to. Mm -hmm. uh, the House could shift on some of those seats alone. The Senate Republicans could, if they pick up those, some of those seats could solidify um, their thing. So we could come back from this election with the full transformation of the um, urban versus non- Twin Cities dynamic in place, sort of already beginning to be ossified at the state capitol. And to underscore that point, there are some northwestern Minnesota seats that at the beginning of this decade that were represented by a Democrat where there's not even a Democrat in the race. There's mm -hmm. there's a couple Republicans mm -hmm. who are who are running for that party nomination. And so those races will be decided in August. It's so interesting to see how much the, the complexion of the state political map has changed. And something I'm watching for in the legislative races is what happens on the Iron Range. There's just a few Democrats really holding true Iron Range seats left. Republicans are eyeing those. They really want to sweep the Iron Range and kind of transform that longtime blue, you know, mining labor area into a true Republican stronghold. Our time is running short, so I'm going to ask you for quick predictions. We'll go back to where we started Dave, uh, will there be a special legislative session? No. Well, that was quick. Brian Bax, what do you think? If there is, it won't be the big kahuna. It'll be something very, very tailored. I'm going yeah. no with Dave. So it's uh, yes. it's, it's uh, three no's and maybe a small kahuna. <laughs> small kahuna, yeah. <laughs> um, so what would a small kahuna look like? 
maybe just reauthorizing some of the uh, the federal transportation money, perhaps fixing a wording thing with the unemployment fund. I mean, just very small stuff. And a bonding bill could sneak and in that way. But no big tax cut. It's hard to see it unless they, they find agreement on the spending side. Uh, Democrats just don't want to give away their one leverage point. Brianna, no, I, no tax cut? I, I think that they just can't kind of hang – this just gets strung along until um, suddenly there's an election, until suddenly there's a new session. Uh, that's what I think is going to happen. Well, this is very concerning to me because uh, without that tax cut, I'm going to have to worry about my retirement fund. Get a financial planner. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's the Muskie opener this weekend. This will be like going out for muskies and catching a small northern pike. Okay. A, sm- a small northern, a little kahuna, and uh, no tax cut. Our, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Dave Oreck, he's from the Pioneer Press, covers the Capitol, government, and politics. Brianna Biersbach from the Star Tribune does the same thing for the paper across the river. And Brian Bax, our good, reliable reporter here for NPR News, thanks again for coming on, sharing your reporting with us. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.